Well, we're closing out 2013, and you know, in one side, it, it, it's just another Sunday, right? It, and, uh, and life goes on. We turn a page on a calendar, and we keep moving. Uh, and yet, at the same time, there's just some sense that, uh, that there's new beginnings, right? It's, it's, uh, it's uh, an opportunity to, to launch into some new things. And this morning, I want to talk about forward thinking. Uh, planning or forward thinking is that planning or tending to plan for the future, looking forward, looking right. It's uh, it's it's thinking about what's coming next. And uh, and Stephen Covey in his book uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, it's a it's a classic business book. He says, begin with the end in mind. Always begin with the end in mind, and that's really where uh, where I want to lay this truth that I feel like the Lord put on my heart this morning is to, uh, to begin with this forward thinking with the truth, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming again. Now, we don't, we don't hear a lot about this uh, these days. It seemed like when I was a kid, this was like once a month Sunday night church, you heard this message. Jesus is coming again. Be ready. And, uh, and it was almost, uh, I don't know, a, a, a little bit of fear but uh, that, was, that was perpetrated on us uh, as, as a kid. And, uh, but uh, there, what do you think about when you hear these words, Jesus is coming again? A lot of people think about fear mongers. Think about those, those uh, prophecy teachers that just put it on us. Uh, and uh, I don't know, does anybody remember a book entitled 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Rapture the Church? And I'll explain that word rapture in a minute. But 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Again in 1988? Nobody, nobody remember that? I remember that well as a youth pastor. I mean, it was being spread out. Uh, there was a, a guy by the name of Edgar Wisenant. Uh, former NASA rocket engineer who turned prophecy teacher, and he wrote this little pamphlet in 1988 that uh, on September 11th of that year, between September 11th and September 13th, Jesus was going to come back and, and take his church away, and there would be mass chaos, and it, a lot of things would ensue. Uh, one Christian broadcast, this is embarrassing to say, there was actually one Christian broadcasting network that, uh, that put, preempted their regular programming over those three days to run what to do if you miss the rapture spots. Okay? Uh, thousands of people took this book very seriously, uh, sold their homes, and set, literally some people sat up on rooftops looking for Jesus to come in the sky. Uh, a lot, there was a bump in church attendance, they said, uh, those, those, that month or so, uh, but unfortunately that dissipated as the fear dissipated as well. And then, of course, most recently, uh, the name Harold uh, Camping, Harold Camping, does that ring a bell? Down in, uh, down in the Bay Area in 2011, he uh, he predicted that on May 21st of 2011, Jesus was going to rapture his church. In fact, his independent Christian media empire spent millions of dollars uh, on, uh, on 
advertising campaigns, that billboards, over 5,000 billboards. Uh, there was 20 RVs that drove the countryside with this, this end of the world message. And, uh, you know, the end of the world did come for Harold Camping just uh, two weeks ago when on December 18th, uh, he passed away uh, at the age of 92, and, uh, and we're still here. It didn't happen. So what's that about? You know, we, we get this idea of fear, and uh, we're going to take a look at this. You know, it, it's not an idea of sci-fi either. We, sometimes we, we roll this end-of-the-world message into, into the, the Hollywood sci-fi uh, genre, the apocalyptic films. You know, in between 1950 and 59, there were only seven apocalyptic films made, one of those being War of the Worlds. Between 2000 and 2009, there were 52 apocalyptic films made. That seems interesting to me that there seems to be ramping up this whole idea of an end of the world idea. And in fact, between... Uh, between 2009 and right now, we've already had 51 apocalyptic films made. And in fact, uh, Nicolas Cage is, is starring in a new uh, film that's being made from the Left Behind series, a popular book series that was uh, produced in the 1990s. That film is due this May of 2014, the Left Behind film starring Nicolas Cage. So it'll be interesting to see how, uh, how that all turns out. Now as a kid growing up, this, like I said, this message often got preached. And, uh, and as a, as a teen, young teenage boy, uh, there, was, there was definitely a fear in my heart that uh, I could be left behind. In fact, one night I had a dream, like a lot of different Christian kids. I had, I had a dream that the next morning I woke up, I went out to get the paper on the front step, and, and there I picked up the paper, and it has in this huge type, Jesus has returned, millions missing. And I, I brought it in, I threw it on the, on the table, my sister came in and she screamed, ah! You know, and, and I woke up at that moment. I laid there, I don't know how long I laid there, I, I bet I laid there for probably 15, 20 minutes, scared out of my wits. I mean, I shook, I began to shake so bad, I think I was 12 years old, I shook so bad that I, I was sleeping on the top bunk bed, and I shook it so bad that my brother beneath me woke up. And he's, hey, what are you doing up there? You know, he yelled at me. Now, the fact that my brother was still in bed did, give, did not give me any comfort whatsoever. <laughs> right? I knew how he lived. <laughs> so I got up and, and I went in. And what do you do? I had to find mom. Because if I knew mom was there, now thank God she hadn't gotten up and gone to the bathroom or something. I went in, I found her in bed, and she came out and she prayed with me, and it was all good, and I, you know, thank God. But we tend to t take this thought of Jesus is coming again, and we, we tie it to fear 
or to the fanciful, the sci-fi. But this morning, I want to share with you, and if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to understand Jesus made us this promise. He is coming back. It is his promise. And it's not meant to scare us. It's not meant to, to, to uh, uh, create some kind of guilt on us. Jesus gave us a beautiful promise of his coming, and it's meant to encourage us for you and I today. It's meant to be a promise of love, right? So let's take a look at this. Jesus promised he is coming back. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus is in his final hours with his closest followers. He's in this room. He, they're locked in. Uh, within just a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested, and, and the steps to the cross will soon begin. But he's meeting with his 12 disciples, and he's giving them some final instruction and teaching. And it is in this context that we read John chapter 14, and, uh, and he, uh, he shares this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Now what is Jesus talking about? The words here are a, are a beautiful picture that are very similar to what uh, occurs in a Jewish wedding ceremony of that day. Now this is important because Christ's followers, we the church, the capital T, the church, are called the Bride of Christ. And understanding the ancient wedding ceremony helps us understand what Jesus is talking about here and his promise. You see, there are three phases to a wedding. There was the contract, the consummation, and then the celebration. You know, you, in the story of Joseph and Mary, and Joseph said in, that uh, he had a mind to put Mary away, they had already... Uh, done the wedding contract according to, to uh, Scripture. They were, as, they were indeed legally married and, and, and with all the rights and responsibilities of marriage except for the physical relationship of marriage when, we, when, uh, when Mary was found to be with child. But the contract for the bride includes a promise of return. The groom would come with his father. There would be an arrangement. There would be a signed contract. There would be a cup lifted up. Interesting that that's what Jesus did at the Last Supper. huh? There would, there would be a cup lifted up and as, a, as a symbol of the sealing of this contract of marriage. And then a price would be paid and a promise of return was declared. Then the groom would return to his home and begin to prepare the bridal chamber where he would, and that could take up to seven years of preparation of that bridal chamber, which is the second part of, of that uh, contract. The bridegroom would return only when the father 
gave the word and met his approval of the preparation of the bridal chamber. Now I want you to think of this. The groom makes a contract. He goes back and he is preparing that room for the consummation of that relationship physically. That's going to be the bridal chamber. The catch is that he can't go back and get his bride until that room meets the approval of his father. Isn't that interesting? Now, like I say, that could take up to, uh, up to seven years in some cases waiting for the groom to come back and get his bride. Now think of the tension in motivations. Making things good enough to make your dad happy. I can remember being given cleaning projects, and maybe your, your uh, parents had done this with you as well. But I remember getting, as a kid getting projects, clean this or fix that, and when you're done, when you think you're done, come and get me, and I'll, I'll tell you if it's done good enough or not. Right? That's kind of this idea. And, and, uh, and the tension and motivations, think of it, that uh, the eager anticipation of the groom to be with his bride, and yet there's this tension of the father's onlooking eye and, uh, and the patience of the father to make the preparation just perfect for, for that bridegroom because it was his name that was on the line. It's interesting, in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said, no one knows that day or hour when the Son of Man comes, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Interestingly enough, Jesus himself said that in this, in this word picture, I don't even know when, when the Father's going to say it's, when it's time. But when, when the Father says all things are ready, it's perfect now, then Jesus will be given the word to come. They would return, once, uh, once the father gave the word, the, the groom would return, take his bride, and the, the wedding party would join the, the, uh, the procession back to the groom's home, and this was the moment of consummation, physically becoming husband and wife. Family and friends would be outside, waiting, gathered together, and then the celebration would begin in earnest. Now, it's interesting that this truth, this promise of Jesus, was a promise given that the, even the very first century church believed could happen at any moment. People believed it could happen at any time. Should we be any different? Nothing else needs to happen for Jesus' promise to be fulfilled. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 2. Now, brothers... About the times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Well, let's take a look at this promise. Jesus' promise is going to be worked out then in two key events. First of all, there is a catching away. 
We refer to that as the rapture. Now, the word rapture doesn't actually appear in Scripture, but this is where we get this concept. It's this idea of a catching away. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. And there's that rapture thought right there. We who are alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another or each other with these words. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul writes to the church this way, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. This idea of the twinkling of the eye, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? An interesting idea. What does that mean? Well, that idea of the twinkling of the eye is, is, is the time it takes for you to recognize someone you love. I think about uh, when, I, when I walk through the door of my daughter's house and my granddaughter, see, I knew I could get my grandkids in here somewhere. Uh, my granddaughter comes around the corner, and she's just two and a half years old, and she's got kind of this blank, quizzed look on her face, but the minute, that instant that she recognizes me coming through the door, she's, her face changes immediately, and it's, Abuelo! That's grandpa in Spanish. Uh, and, uh, and I mean, the recognition is immediate. That's what that word, twinkling of an eye, means. It's that, it's that instantaneous moment when, uh, when you recognize someone you love. When we hear the voice and when we see Jesus coming, that twinkling of an eye, that, that moment of recognition of who he is, we will be with him as, uh, as he comes back. Now, I believe this is going to set... The end time events in motion. This is, this is the beginning of the day of the Lord, as it were. This marks the beginning of the end. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and everything in them will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be exposed to judgment. Now much of what you read then of the book of Revelation will occur in the, in the span of, of seven years at, at that time. Then, as that, as after, after that seven-year time, the physical return of Christ will happen 
on this earth. Revelation 1.7, look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye, now see, this is a different phrase. Before he's coming as a thief, he's coming unknown. But here at this point, every eye will see him coming. Uh, it says, even those who pierced him and all the peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. That physical return of Christ, so shall it be, amen. Matthew 24, 30, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And Revelation 19, 11 through 14, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has written a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven follow him, riding on a white horse and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. So there's this catching away, a seven-year span, then the physical return of Christ to the earth. Now, exactly how and when this is all going to be worked out is, as you know, among Christians is really a, a, a subject of much debate. We know that within this time frame, there will be a great tribulation. Jesus spoke of it, and much of Revelation paints a somber picture of what is, going, what is going to happen, what that's going to look like. The length of explanation on all this is, is really much more than, than uh, we can give to the subject at this time. Now, I believe the Bible tells us the order, and as I shared, that rapture or catching away, the seven-year tribulation, then the second coming of Christ. I do understand that there are very godly uh, and, and intelligent people who hold to other viewpoints on the matter. However, know this to be true. Know this to be absolutely true. Jesus is coming again, right? It's his promise. It's what he said. He is coming for his bride, which the Bible explains is the church, and there will be a final judgment. God is going to put a period on the end of human history. And the last sentence begins with Jesus coming again. Forward thinking. Forward thinking. Beginning with the end in mind. Now Jesus' promise gives us purpose. There's a reason that he gave us this promise, and there's a reason that every generation of believers has held to this truth. And that's what I want you to get this morning, that it's not a message of Jesus is coming and he's really mad. It's a promise, Jesus is coming, and he's coming out of love. He's coming for you and for me, for his church. Jesus' promise gives us purpose. Knowing Jesus is coming back, first and foremost, helps me endure. This is where I want you to hang on to this truth. When you're going through a tough time, remember 
this is not what it's all about. This is not the totality of what we've been saved for. His truth is given so that we might endure. Suffering is part of the believer's life. Can I say that again? Are you with me? Suffering is part of a believer's life. Jesus promised it. I mean, it, it, it's written about. We're, we're told over and over again. So, therefore, there is a day of deliverance. There is a day of deliverance. And Jesus' promise gives us a measure of meaning to the suffering that we're going through at that moment. 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. Paul writes to his, his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says, I have fought a good fight. I finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, great day of his return. And the prize is not just for me. Hear this. The prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his glorious return. One Translation says it, and not to me only, but to all who love his appearing. That, that the struggle, that the race that we're running, that the fight that we're in, the things that you're experiencing, and what, whatever comes your way in 2014, can I tell you today, Jesus' promise of his coming gives us some meaning in the, in the moments of, those, of that suffering. He is coming again, and with Him, He's bringing a reward. With Him, He's bringing His encouragement and His love for you and I, the church. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-11, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. This promise is meant for us to not only give ourselves personal meaning, but to, to encourage one another in those times of suffering. That he is coming again. We also recognize that knowing Jesus is coming back, part of that purpose is to give us hope. Hope for my loved ones. This is forward thinking. I will see them again. Now, Pastor Stan, a couple of weeks ago, talked about the truth that, uh, that we're all going to die. That, 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 isn't that a joyous thought? Yeah. The, the truth is that there will be an end to this life. Now, with this, with this idea in mind, Paul tells us that because Christ was raised from the dead, we also shall be raised from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, 
53 and through 57, for our perishable earthly bodies must be transformed into heavenly bodies that will never die. When this happens, when our perishable earthly bodies have been transformed into heavenly bodies that will never die, then at last the scripture will come true. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. However, we thank God who gives us victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is, it is in that moment, even, if, even as our loved ones have, have gone before us in death, because Jesus promised he was coming back again. We have the promise of seeing our loved ones once again. Isn't that great? 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the call of the archangel and the trump of God, call of God. First, all the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. They're going to be first. And we're going to see them. I had lunch the other day with a, a friend of mine, Owen. And Owen's retired and, his, and as a widower, his wife has passed on. He's, Owen's part of our church here and he gave me permission to share this. And as we were talking and Owen was sharing his story with me a little bit and how his wife's passing he made a statement that just, just grabbed my heart. He said, you know, Jerry, I have, I have more people that I know now at my age, I have really more of my people that are on the other side in heaven than are here. He says, I can't wait to get there. And I thought, that's the hope. That's the hope that Jesus promised us. That's that forward thinking that, that we have declared in him. I also remember my very first hospital visitation as a pastor. I was, I was still in Bible school, but I joined the staff of a church at Kent Christian Center with Pastor Harold Fuller. And, and one day he invited me, Jerry, let's go to the hospital. Uh, Leonard Owens, a gentleman who had been a brother, had been part of the church for a number of years. He was in the hospital. In fact, he was floating in and out of a coma. He, his days were very short. Now, I'll never forget walking into that hospital room. Uh, mind you, I'm, I'm 19, 20 years old. I'm a, this is the first time I'd really been on assignment as a pastor in, in, a, in a hospital room where death was imminent. And uh, we took our place alongside Leonard's bed and he was drifting in and out and I just felt like the Lord wanted me to, to sing. So I started singing this song. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And I began to sing that and Leonard stirred at that moment and he began to sing in perfect harmony the words to that old chorus. And I got to tell you, it was a moment where I got a glimpse into heaven.
a glimpse into that, that hope that we have as believers in Christ. A glimpse into that true promise. Jesus, Leonard's been singing with Jesus for years now, but there's, there's coming a day when he returns. And, and honestly, folks, I'm not looking for the undertaker. I'm looking for the upper taker, all right? I'm looking for that moment when Jesus says, come on home, everything's ready. The Father says go. It's going to happen. Knowing Jesus is coming back also helps me prioritize. You know, there's a sense of urgency that comes with this truth, and that's maybe perhaps sometimes why we, we, we don't want to embrace it so much. But Jesus gave us this promise of his return to the church to give us that, that endurance, to give us that hope, but to also give us that sense of urgency to prioritize. You know, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives us gives a, a, a long list of teaching about what's going to happen in those, those end days, when the end is coming. And, he's, and he gives some, some word pictures there, very specific, of what that wrath and that, that, uh, that judgment's going to look like as it's begin poured out on the, on, uh, the earth. But then he turns a page and, and uh, in Matthew 25, he begins with the whole chapter with this statement, at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like. And Matthew 25 becomes, becomes three stories or three teachings, two parables and, and a word picture of what it's going to look like at that time. At, the, at, at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like this. And, uh, and he really is giving us this idea of the priorities that we need to have right now because of the truth that he is coming back. And what do those priorities look like? What are the priorities that he gives us? He, first of all, the parable of the ten young virgins. You, know, you think, well, that's kind of a strange... Well, these are ten uh, bridesmaids, if you will. Ten bridesmaids, attendants for the bride. And he gives us this parable because, again, it's, it's, it's that painting of this wedding, this whole idea of a wedding and the bride coming together. And the first parable in 25 is that are these ten virgins that are, that are supposed to be prepared. And it says, Matthew 25, 1, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like... Again, he's looking forward to that moment when he comes back. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And he goes on and tells this story. Five were wise. They brought enough oil with them that they were prepared that, that uh, while they, the bridegroom was lingering, it wasn't coming just yet. And, and, when it went, and at midnight, it says, when the bridegroom finally shows up, there are five of these bridal bridesmaids, these attendants, had, their, had their enough oil that they could trim their lamps, they could go ahead and go in, and they were ready. But there were five others that hadn't brought enough oil. They weren't prepared. They hadn't thought it through. They hadn't had enough forward thinking to be ready and fully prepared 
when the bridegroom came. And while they were off, it says, Jesus says, while they were off getting more oil, the bridegroom came. And remember that procession that I talked about? They all left and went into the Father's house and the, celebra- the doors were closed. And these five bridesmaids that were supposed to be part of the wedding party, they weren't ready. They came back and, and the door was shut up. And so... Jesus says, the whole point to that parable is Matthew 25, 13. So stay awake and be prepared because you do not know the day or the hour of my return. Jesus' promise is about us prioritizing today. Be prepared. Be ready. The parable of the talents follows right after that. We're We're very familiar. We've heard this message oftentimes. But remember, it comes in context of this, at that time, the kingdom of God will be like a master who gave talents to three of his his servants. Five, two, and one talents. Bags of gold, if you will. And, uh, And these guys were given money to invest on behalf of the master until he returned again. This parable is given to us to inspire us to be busy and productive for Him. The promise of Jesus is to help us prioritize to be productive while He's gone. Take what He's given us and put it to good use. And remember, everything is about attitude. Because Jesus said, as He told that parable, 25 uh, verses 24 and 25, then the servant with the one bag of gold came and said, Sir, I know you're a hard man and harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. You know what he's doing there? He's, he's actually accusing the master of breaking the laws of harvest. You didn't plant, but you want to reap. Right? And, and he, the, can you catch the attitude? You're a hard man. So I was afraid. And uh, I, I was afraid I'd lose your money, so I hid it on the earth, and so here it is. And Jesus condemns that man because his attitude was not one of productivity and busyness for his master. When Jesus is coming, he wants, us, he wants to find his church prepared, but also busy doing something right now. Taking your talents and your gifts and, and making it making the most of it for the master. And then that third parable or word picture in in Matthew 25 is this separation of the sheep and the goats. And I'm not going to read that whole story, but uh, we find in 37 through 40, then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we see you ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will tell them. Remember, in the context of his return. And the king will tell them, I assure you, when you did it to one of the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. The focus of Jesus' question here is, what did you do for others? while you are waiting for my return. Folks, this is why, this is why Jesus gave his church that promise. 
I am coming again, Jesus said. And it, it's to help us prioritize, to be prepared, to be busy for Him, and to not focus on ourselves, but focus on the people around us. That our lives are, are such as, as we have given our life to Christ, it is such that it's not lived out, it's not about me anymore. Because Jesus is coming, it's about those people around me. That's the message of Matthew 25 and, and Jesus coming. There's a saying, I, I remember hearing it said often as a kid, some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Right? And there's, there's probably some truth in that. Some, if you get so focused on, on just the promise, if you, if you get caught up in, in these ridiculous statements of, of predictions on the day that the Lord's going to come, as I started out this message, if you get caught up in those silly kind of things, then yeah, we, we do become so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good to anyone. But I believe, I believe that uh, we can be so heavenly minded that we are motivated at doing a world of earthly good. That we could, as we're heavenly minded, we can have great impact right here, right now, because of his promise of return. So I ask you are, you, are you ready for him? Are you busy and productive? Do you concern yourself with others on his behalf? Forward thinking, beginning with the end in mind. That's what this is, message is about this morning. I want to read 2 Peter 3, 9 through 11 again. And, and catch the question in verse 11 because that, that's really what I want us to leave with here this morning. 2 Peter 3, 9 the Lord isn't really being slow about His promise to return, as some people think. No, he, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to perish. So He's giving everyone time. He's giving time for everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come unex as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and everything in them will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be exposed to judgment. Verse 11, since everything around us is going to melt away, what holy, godly lives, what goldly, holy, godly lives you should be living? How should we be living? What does 2014 hold for us? I can't and I won't make any predictions. That would be foolish. I can probably make a fair guess that some of us will experience some loss. That without being any kind of prophet, I can, I can probably predict that 
some of us will go through some very difficult times in 2014. But Jesus gave us a promise that he is coming back again. And he wants you to know that's promises for you today to encourage you and bless you.